0: Hello. Welcome to the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we learn and grow with philosophy from the farm. I'm your host, Terrence Leahy. Our guest today is Ben Glasson from Glasson Farms in Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Together, we'll be talking about Ben's introduction into agriculture, his modular farming systems, the upcoming meat processing plans he has, and much, much more. Please be prepared to enjoy a fantastic conversation with Ben Glasson. Ben Glasson, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's definitely exciting. I've um, listened to all of your episodes, and its I, I consider it my favorite farm podcast, and I only listen to farm podcasts.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, dear goodness. I haven't even listened to the oldest episodes in a good long while, and oh, my. Let, let's, not, let's not think about that. Uh, I just want to give the audience a little context here because... Currently, as you are doing this interview, you are at one of your farm locations and you are tending to one of your livestock. Would you mind giving us a a little bit of what that story is right now?
1: Yeah. So the one property that I farm at, we call it the Willows Bend Estate Farm. So it's a 12 acre property on the lake. And the context was right to raise pigs here. And so we've raised a couple batches of pigs, but this is our first time with a bred sow. So right now I'm sitting in the bedding with Belle and Belle is an Asaba cross sow who is having her first litter and she's due today. And so I've only just arrived here. I'm going to spend the rest of the afternoon sitting with her and, and you know, comforting her as she goes through this.
0: Well, Belle, we're rooting for you.
1: She appreciates that. <laughs> So
0: getting started one of my first questions is to just tell us a little bit about what your farm looks like you said you're currently at the Willow Bend estate how is your farm laid out and what do you raise
1: Uh, So I'm new to farming. I have been farming for just over three years now. I started uh, urban farming with pastured quail in backyards outside of Vancouver, BC, the big city. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I moved back to kind of my hometown of Vancouver Island in Nanaimo. And, And so I started with a five acre lease. And that five-acre lease, I started my pasture poultry operation with broiler chickens. Mm-hmm. And then I started here at Willows Bend Estate. And, um, and I was brought on to do kind of some maintenance. And then, you know, he, he immediately saw my, my farm website and was interested in that. And I started offering the ability to get him his farm tax. And he had beautiful forests that we be perfect for forest-raised pork. And so we started raising pigs here. Um, and then I also have partnered with an equestrian property, which is twenty two acres, um, and we raise, uh, we raised our holiday turkeys there. And then um, at the end of last summer, I also started my grazing operations uh, with a small flock of um, of, of sheep. Uh, So I have the three properties under management. And then I, myself, when we moved to Vancouver Island, we found the smallest, cheapest little home we could afford in town. So our first home. Um, And so I practice only on lease land by farming. And then we own our little urban homestead, we call it, uh, in town.
0: That's really neat. One of the things that I I had written this down because I knew, especially if it came up, we had to ask. So... I hear lots of people that find that chickens are the gateway drug into agriculture, but you started with quail.
1: Yes, sir. What's so the story I there? Lived, <laughs> yeah. So I lived in an urban community. Um Port Moody, which is the the end of the Burrard Strait, so it's this little village, historic town. It's where the the railway first met the Pacific Ocean oh, cool. um, w- during the founding of Canada, and so it's this cute little quaint little village within you know the the bigger cities. And so th- we were not allowed to have backyard chickens there, and I wanted to start practicing p- pasture poultry, so I found a loophole, which was people and animals that are generally considered pets must live within, within a domicile. And so even though the quail would have been happy to sleep out on the grass, their quail tractor, not chicken tractor, but a quail tractor that were three foot by seven foot, it had a domicile, so a enclosed area that I would push them into every night. And so that was how I fit in the gray area of the Port Moody bylaw.
0: <laughs> so now that you, you're raising chickens, obviously... Is there a lot of difference between raising pastured quail and pastured chickens? I'm just really curious about that.
1: No, not at all. It was uh, it was the perfect uh, pilot project for me to gain experience both. Um, and so the practices that I use are you know adapted from Joel South, And So detach the land ownership from the farming. So mm-hmm. Use leased land or borrowed land. Use mobile infrastructure, both that you can move onto the land, but also keeping your uh, animals moving like migratory, uh, like their migratory instincts. Use modular infrastructure, so start with one tractor and then scale up with profitability and so i started with one backyard in port moody and i ended up with five backyards before i ended that project and then um the fourth piece is direct marketing so having relationships with your customers so with um there was a uh, port moody car free day and i wasn't allowed to sell food but i had my my booth set up and um I sold memberships to the quail club for $10 and they got a little punch card. And with, and, uh, with their $10 membership, they got their first set of eggs for free and a carton of three dozen quail eggs was $10 anyhow. So that was my little workaround on how to sell at the car free day. And so I got about 10 customers that were able to purchase everything I was able to produce during the quail project.
0: That's awesome. And what a way to start out. Not only, Was it a a smart workaround? But again, not many people, not many people have quail as their starting project. So it immediately jumps out in your story and it's, it's a really great one.
1: Mm -hmm. And you know, I have heard both Joel Salatin and Daniel Salatin mention, you know, maybe, maybe your context is right to start with quail or this or that. And so I, 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 I have yet to contact with them and say, I'm that guy, but (laughs) soon enough, I'm sure they'll hear that I'm that guy.
0: Well, if they're listening to the podcast, they just heard it. So what is it that got you interested in agriculture to begin with? Was this something you grew up doing? How did you, how did you get to the point where you're like, I really want to start raising quail in my backyard and eventually scale that up to what you're doing today?
1: My parents were urbanites, um, but my mother's family, the lavender family, they, uh, had greenhouses in Ontario, Canada. Um, so her great or her uncles would have had a greenhouse businesses. And then my father's side, the, my great grandfather, he was a Belgian Brabant breeder in the Midwest. And, mm. um, And, and so, and then my great uncle worthy, he was a, uh, you know, hobby farm, uh, and rodeo announcer. And so when I was born, they all, and, and we lived in central Washington Wenatchee. So the, the apple capital, and we would feed the, the horses and the cows across the fence. And, um, and I became interested in livestock then. And then when I was two years old, a dad's coworker, took us to a rodeo and I was glued to the fence. So from the time I was two years old till I was 11 years old, I was obsessive about being a rancher, being a cowboy, going to rodeos. And then um, kind of started cycling more as I was into my teenage years um, and had a professional career as a cyclist, but always had in the back of my mind that at some point I would, you know, get back into farming. And then as I injured out of my profession in the mountain bike industry, then I started researching uh agriculture again first studying aquaponics during my graduating year doing a tourism degree I convinced my Mm -hmm. instructors to allow me to do my graduating research and the connection between tourism and uh and aquaponics although that's very high investment so then I started looking for low investment agriculture and so that's where I found the pasture poultry model and really you know my 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 wishes of becoming a rancher and working with livestock um Pastured poultry leading up to, you know, forest raised pork and then eventually into grazing systems. That was, that was more so aligned with my childhood dreams.
0: What kind of sheep do you raise? Are they hair or wool?
1: Hair sheep. So I have St. I started with uh, six St. Croix ewes Mm -hmm. um, and then have a bit of Katahdin that um, uh, I have a Katahdin ram that I that a friend was able to sell me. And then um, I will also breed in some Dorper. I I think I'll continue more with Dorpers to, to get some size. Although, you know, the regenerative practices is, you know, always start with breeding stock that is appropriate to your climate. Mm-hmm. And um, you know Greg Judy is a a guy that I look up to a lot for grazing systems, and he he swears by the Saint Croix for their um, for their you know tolerance to parasites. So I found some a lady who locally had um, she had a flock of about twenty Saint Croix. She had raised them all naturally and uh, had had the same flock here on the island uh, close by for. 20 years or more. Oh wow. And so it was a great fit to start with those genes and then add other traits as I grow.
0: Mm-hmm. That way you can adapt to what your particular circumstances are, which is one of the cool things about livestock is that we don't realize how many of the breeds that are out there started out just in that exact way, which is one person was like, you know, I need something that works really well for where I'm at.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that's, that's where all these, you know, the heritage breeds, the Herefords, the, you know, the Devons, these are communities in Britain that had their, their locally adapted breeds. Uh, and so I, I think of where I am here on the island in British Columbia as being a very similar climate and also context to to the United Kingdom Because we're on this rock here and Mm -hmm. very small farming communities, very small plots, and it's very rainy because we have the same weather as Seattle or Vancouver.
0: That was actually one of the questions I was going to ask is I didn't know where Vancouver Island was. Granted, I'm also not. uh, Geography, I was good at a lot of stuff in school, but I'll be honest, geography was my worst topic. But would you tell us a little bit about Vancouver Island?
1: Yeah. So this is on the West coast of Canada. And so the Island is about, uh, I believe 650 miles long, uh, stretching from, you know, due due West of Seattle up along the coast, probably halfway between, um, the border to from, from the British Columbia border, uh, South to the uh, border between Alaska. So, uh, this is the traditional lands of the coast Salish people, the first nations here, and mm-hmm. I live in Shtanaimuk, uh, the Shinaimo nation, uh, which translated to Nanaimo. Uh, and the Salish Sea is the the S- Straits of Wanda that that separates us from the mainland. Uh, and then there's the 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 Gulf islands which which are the chain of islands between the big island vancouver island and the mainland uh and so we're nestled nestled you know those islands are are the san juan islands is what the u.s calls them and those are nestled between seattle and vancouver and here
0: okay as i said i always think it's helpful to get an idea of where you're at because context matters so much in farming i mean realistically speaking we're trying to work within adaptive systems, which means you're adapting to whatever your particular context actually is. And speaking of that, your context has changed a little bit since when you started with your Quail Club. How do you market your products now?
1: Yeah, So now um, I market direct to customers. So I started with a crowd com- crowdfunding campaign to sell my first batch of broiler chickens, and that landed me about 45 families. And mm-hmm. then now I've grown to about a hundred families that I serve. And then I also have uh, regular customers at a Wednesday farmer's market. And I work with four restaurants and one butcher shop here in town.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned butcher shops because you're working on a project for creating, I, you call it an abattoir, right?
1: Yeah, correct. So that's the you know the French word for slaughterhouse or or uh, meat meat plant.
0: I always find this conversation interesting when it comes up, especially because I grew up working with livestock and on an organic grass fed beef farm. So I remember, and heaven knows, all I heard last year from farmers in twenty twenty that had livestock was, "Oh dear goodness, getting processing dates is a nightmare." especially last year. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your project with that?
1: So that's exactly the problem that I'm looking to solve. And I'm not only looking to solve it locally, but I see the opportunity that once I build a pilot project here, that I can expand this system, uh, you know, across British Columbia and across Canada and into the States as well, because I do have dual citizenship. I was born near Seattle and moved to Canada when I was five. So, and my business partner, a business consultant who became very passionate about the meat processing industry and the need for it, he too has dual citizenship. So, we very much look to expand into the US because there is so much, so much need for meat processing, mm-hmm. uh, especially on a small scale to do custom processing so that the farmer can go direct to the market with their product. So, in order to be able to retail or sell your meat, you need to have it processed at a inspected facility, whether that's provincially state, uh, state inspected or a CFIA in Canada or, uh, USDA in the U S so here on Vancouver Island, there was five red meat plants and five poultry plants, all very small working with, you know, small farmers. Mm -hmm. Well, since 2018, Four of those have shut down. Two red meat, two poultry. Holy cow! And that's because the owners have either passed away, while still working, or um, or retired with no succession plan. And so this is the story across the farming industry that it's an aging demographic, mm-hmm. and there there's you know challenges in creating a succession plan, um, and and there's not enough young people who are aware of the industry and who are, um, you know, knowledgeable enough or or interested enough or given the opportunity to step up into these positions. So I guess I'm the young guy in my early thirties, who's, you know, new to the industry. And if I want to be able to grow my farm, I need to build first a poultry plant, but then red meat plants as well. So my plan is to build, uh, the smallest minimum viable product if Mm -hmm. we think to lean manufacturing, um, the smallest, minimal viable product of first a poultry plant, then a sheep and pork plant, and then a beef plant. So I'm using shipping containers because, again, with all those same principles that I use in farming, lease land, mobile, modular, and direct marketing, mm-hmm. we'll build in a sh- sh- uh, 40-foot shipping container will be the poultry line. And then we'll have a 20-foot refrigerated unit and a 20-foot office and bathroom. And so we can drop that onto lease land. And so we're calling it semi-permanent because uh, um, it, uh, 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 it's fixed in place. Mobile abattoirs are considered, uh, on-farm processing. So the Mm -hmm. abattoir is on a trailer and it goes to the farm and processes at that farm, then it goes to the next farm. We're semi-permanent because we are on lease land and we will set up. But if we ever lose the lease or if we need to move or if we're able to find a better location where we can do more or if the market changes, then we have that flexibility and we're nimble and able to move if we need to. Mm -hmm.
0: That is such an awesome idea. That is really an awesome idea because again, it's also scalable. Like you said, when you separate out the, the requirement for it being in a fixed location, your adaptability just goes through the roof.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then that makes it easy that if, you know, if this community can't support it, or if there's a, uh, a legality change, then we're able to up and move or, um, or if, or if it's going really well, we can add another shipping container and we can uh, double the size of the line quite quickly and easily. So there's it's very important to be nimble. Mm-hmm.
0: And so what is the current progress on this plan? Just for the sake of those who are listening, they're like, Ooh, mm-hmm. I really want to find out more.
1: We're mid-March now. And so I was very close to securing, purchasing one of the old closed down abattoirs, but that fell through and I'm almost glad because first of all, it kind of goes against my goals of leasing land and my, Mm -hmm. my theories around that. Um, and also because it was a plant from 1962. So I would ever be battling the challenges of an old facility. Whereas now I can build as I intended modular infrastructure that can, um, that, that is mobile. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Again, so
1: that fell through. I just love the idea. So, Yeah. So right now I'm at the point where I have uh, a few different options for properties. So I'm locking down a lease on which property will be the best option and then uh, we'll be in construction through April. And my goal is to be open uh, in May. I have my first batch of broilers that I just picked up this past week. And so by the beginning of May, I will hope to be processing in my own plant.
0: That is awesome. What a great turnaround time too. This is where I've been preaching the idea of the minimal viable product to various friends and colleagues in my industry. And it's so useful because it takes the easiest... I can't remember what the exact phrase is, but isn't it like the, the death of progress is perfection? The moment that you start thinking, well, it needs to be all of this before it can be something that's done you're limiting your ability to actually get it out there and start iterating. That's part of the reason why Pasture Poultry makes such a great gateway into agriculture is because it is a kind of a minimal viable product to a degree because it, comparatively to, say, lambs or pigs, it is a lower-cost startup and it allows you to change and adjust a lot quicker.
1: Yes, this is very important for uh, small farmers, young farmers, uh, new farmers to be able to have this flexibility in order to start and, and gain quick, quick cash flow, which is possible through pasture poultry with an eight-week turnaround. For me, being able to quickly build this uh, this small abattoir without needing to even go through building codes and things like that, because th- I, there's, there's a need in the marketplace. And so I need to react quickly in order to figure that out and create the opportunity that not only myself, but many other farmers are scrambling to find processing now that these plants have closed down. Two of the two of the five poultry plants have closed between last August and said they're done as of January 2021. And so farmers on the island for years have already been scaling down. Um, and now... With them closing, everyone's frantic to find processing. So it's a it's a time that we need to be nimble, and with the minimum viable product and and lean manufacturing and the lean startup model, uh, we're going to be nimble, and we're going to set up as as minimalistically as we can. Also, so that we can learn and build the the plant for the needs of the customers. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I'm doing is is f- hiring for a, the dirty job of killing chickens can be difficult. Mm -hmm. And so often it's a minimum wage job and people like, you know, a lot of people will hire people straight out of jail and people and, you know, these, these, you know, people that are not finding work elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's high turnaround for that reason. My goal is to go the opposite direction. I'm going to find people who are already in the culinary industry and with COVID right now, they're out of work and underemployed. And so find them and give them the opportunity to come in. And yes, in the morning, we do the dirty job, dirty work. But then in the afternoon, we're going to give them the freedom and flexibility to value add. So by doing the cut-ups first and foremost, we're going to offer uh, high-quality vacuum packing and custom labels for every customer Mm -hmm. and then if there's additional things like sausage making whether there's you know smoking any other value added things that's that allows the creativity of the culinary worker to come in and and have uh you know put their skills to use even though generally this poultry processing thing is seen to be you know a low-grade job
0: well, that's a really interesting idea and it fits well within the model you're constructing because investing in the human capital and that element really sets you apart because it, it allows you not only the fact that you've got more flexibility in how your actual infrastructure is set up, but the fact that you, have, that you would have qualified people that are highly capable and can do multiple different things. It means you don't have to go through the effort of finding several people to do one job when you can find one really good person that can do multiple things and do them well.
1: Right. And and compensating for the skill of these people coming in and, and giving them the flexibility that, you know, if they need to go back to work at their restaurant job, but want to still continue working for us in the morning, you know, we're going to be flexible. This is, we're really designing this with modern management principles, but with the age old industry of turning animals into people.
0: So you brought up new farmers and a new generation, When we first started talking, the topic of the future of farming came up, and this is always a dialogue that I love to have, and especially since you're a relatively new farmer yourself who is excited and uh, committed to making this a full profession. What do you see the future of agriculture looking like right now? We've brought up the topic of regenerative agriculture a couple of times, and I think that it tends to have a somewhat vague definition. So I'm curious, would you mind first and foremost telling us what you view Regenerative agriculture is, and then also telling us kind of what you perceive to be trends and the future of agriculture with small-scale farmers. I just loaded that question. Is, I know
1: yeah. <laughs> you totally loaded it. Yeah, um, I love it though, and and i'm and i'm very excited to go this direction with the conversation and talk uh, bigger picture because that's what i love about your podcast it gives the opportunity to think big picture about agriculture and where our food comes from so sustainable is reducing our emissions and sustaining the current production systems that we have regenerative takes it to the next step where the basic definition is to uh, renew or repair what has previously been damaged. So regenerative takes the next step where we are not just reducing our harm and reducing our uh, our contribution to climate change, but we are repairing climate change. We are repair- repairing our environments uh, and we are repairing the systems that have been uh, broken in the past. And so, What's interesting is that the biggest level of degradation has happened since the Green Revolution and the industrialization of farming. And so now we have the technology to understand why the older practices, those practices that before 100 years ago, for all of human history, why Mm -hmm. they worked for the most part. We can also understand where the flaws in those um, ancient practices are. But we can use science to pick and choose what were the best, and we can measure what is going to be the best moving forward in order to repair the damage and and return our planet back to its flourishing, abundant self that was before human impact really uh, negated the natural systems that helped humans thrive for thousands of years.
0: So where do you see the future of small-scale farming at this point?
1: So I have an interesting theory on the small scale farming side of things, which is obviously my focus. I love interesting theories. Completely biased. I'm absolutely biased because all of my research has been in regenerative agriculture and small farming, Mm -hmm. which is why I love the new platform of Clubhouse because it allows me to connect directly with uh, large commercial growers to bounce these ideas off of them and to confirm or deny if based on the industry, if I'm on the right track or not. So my theory is based on Wendell Berry's wishes. You read The Unsettling of America and you forget that it was written in 1977. Like mm-hmm. it is so <laughs> relevant that it could have been written yesterday.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And for 150 years, the rural population has been declining. People have been losing their jobs to industrialization on farms and they have been going to the city to find you know, labor jobs, Um, And because the simplification of the farming system uh, has pushed the current farmers to encourage their children to go to the city and get professional jobs uh, because there was no more room for them on the farm. Mm -hmm. Now, my hope is within Wendell Berry's lifetime, we are going to see an increase for the first time in 150 years of the rural population population growing for the first time and I see that happening because automation is making labor jobs obsolete in uh, in the cities yeah so maybe the the laborers will be returning back to rural communities looking for cheaper living then I also see especially with covid the ability for young professionals to be working from home and so they can move back to the small acreage that they've always dreamed of owning. But if they're still going to continue their professional job now working from home and they can move out of the city, that creates the opportunity for the laborers to lease that land and work that land. And so it'll create this partnership of tenant farmers and landowners of the next generation that will get small acreages back into production again.
0: I love this notion because so I've always been, I've always been fond of feudalism. I know that's an odd way of starting that sentence, but really what it is, is we agriculture as a system works on a mat, on a basis of land, land and labor. Those are the two principal elements to creating food. What happens is that we've seen a large separation. Like we, you were just talking about we've seen a separation of the labor from the land that the land has needed less labor as we've industrialized it more and more but to create these systems that work and to create good food naturally at home it does require more hands-on management if we can create those opportunities it would be it reminds me of Joel Salatin's book Field of Farmers I'm not sure if you've read that book but it has some incredible great ideas in it one of them i like is called like stacking fiefdoms which is the idea of having that renting property having farmers there and just creating more of a creating a not necessarily production system but it is empowering local farmers to be connected to land and then in his case they're able to then distribute it through their larger commercial network. So I I love this idea and I really hope we see more and more of it. It's like, it, it is just one of the many incredible opportunities that agriculture has. When a lot of people see crisis, the important thing I think is to look at, okay, well, what's the flip side? Where's the intense opportunity that we have in front of us?
1: absolutely fields of farmers is my current read but it's not on audiobooks so i'm having a hard time getting through it because all day i listen to podcasts audiobooks and you know anything and now clubhouse but um sitting down to flip pages is a lot more difficult for me but you're not the only farmer that feels that way (laughs) Yes. And I know you're a big Audible fan. And actually, um, Mastery is a book that you recommended that I'm currently working on.
0: Oh, I am delighted um, that you are reading that. It is such a great book.
1: Terrence, you don't know how much you have influenced my reading list. And especially because you know, you're know you an Audible guy. And then um, also because you have an affinity for BC boys. You know, Scott <laughs> Hebert, he's just the <laughs> stones throw away. I was there in his neighborhood last week when I picked up my chicks in Abbotsford, and uh, yeah, you know I just uh, love all the recommendations and 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 so much of my education has come from this this Audible um, audio, and it really goes back to storytelling and how mm-hmm. the, the spoken word is how much how so much of humanity evolved and so much of our food practices evolved through spoken word and so going back to the the fiefdoms and the the apprenticeship model um, that Joel Salatin uh, moves for it, it, it's it's that hands-on experience, as Joel says. You you can't Google experience, um, but when you have a mentor or when you have that opportunity to to work together and talk through problems, uh, that is that is the wonderful opportunity that the spoken word um, that this audio this this new modern audio uh, education has allowed farmers like myself to thrive. Um, you know, I work, the book mastery talks a lot about how these, these masters, everyone from Temple Grandin to Benjamin Franklin to, uh, Mozart, how they, they would take these jobs that would move them towards their, their goals, their ultimate goals of mastery and would. And so I have, though I have a degree in tourism and when I was doing the quail project, I was in the city, um, doing a professional job running, uh, conferences. Well, that was the, I read more in that year than I had any other year of my life, maybe all of my life combined because I had the time on the sky train commuting where I was able to read paper books, but then I moved to Vancouver Island and I had an opportunity to take a labor job. And that's when my education really took off because I had the ability to listen to podcasts and listen to audio books eight hours a day. And so I was averaging a hundred hours of content uh, a month Congratulations! Um, at, at work. And I have continued that trend where I always have my headphones in. I'm either on the phone building my businesses or I'm listening to some educational content. And now with Clubhouse, I have the ability to host host conversations um, about these topics. So, yeah, I can't appreciate you guys enough for for the influence you've had on me.
0: Hey, so I have to ask, since we're we're talking about the the spoken word and that being a part of all this, where do you see? How do you see that playing a role in your marketing? Because I think that that's I've always found that's interesting to hear how how that plays a part for each individual farmer.
1: How long have you been an organic certifier?
0: I've been an organic inspector for five years.
1: Okay. I don't believe in organic certification because I don't need it. Mm-hmm. And I say that because uh, because I think that the best certification is the customer comes and sees what I'm doing or that they mm-hmm. have the conversation with me. Um, but the problem is that that doesn't scale. So what you're doing is important because at scale, th- we they need some kind of...
0: Some kind of verification. Of
1: ability some kind of verification. But I think the best verification is if the customer can ask the questions or in the future, I would like to see QR codes where Mm -hmm. a customer standing in the shopping aisle can click the QR code and it can take them to the resources that will allow them to understand the practices um, and the treatment of the people and the treatment of the landscape that are going to make this food what it is. And it's very important to understand the, 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 the three concepts of, of uh, regenerative or sustainable being environmental, social, and economic. And so being able to tell that story is very, very important. And so whether it's me standing at the, at the farmer's market and having conversations with people, or whether it's when someone, when any of my customers give me a call, I will talk to them as long as they'll let me. And I will um, I will avoid talking about the product as long as I possibly can until they ask about it. Because mm-hmm. I want to have that conversation with them. I want to create that relationship with them. Now, of course, at scale, it's more challenging. But I see that technology is the opportunity to add a QR code. And then in the future, I think we will see technology where you'll be able to point your phone at a piece of... Uh, at a piece of food and it will tell you the nutrient density of that food. So Mm -hmm. at least that tells part of the story because you can imagine that for the most part, better practices create more nutrient dense food. So I think those are two pieces of it. Now, of course, I'm just giving you a hard time about organic certification. And, and I just, uh, I say that to get the conversation going, like in clubhouse, when people start asking about certification, I, I get the conversation going by saying, well, I don't think that we need it. So, well, I, and I think but that's you. What
0: do you think? You are entirely correct on that. I've always been despite the fact that it is my profession, I fully support the fact that it is a matter of scale. I have a friend. He did not he was not certified organic when he started his farm. He markets his Pierre groovy. he's been on the show a couple of different times. Great guy. They did not start as a certified organic operation. He became certified when it was something his customers asked him to do because he was selling to more restaurants they wanted to put in their marketing material. The organic seal is a marketing tool. It, that That's how it's listed. In the USDA, it's a part of the Agricultural Marketing Service. It, all it does is signify that there has been some verification system that still cannot compare to a customer being on the farm. And that's something that I keep as something that I'm aware of when I'm an organic inspector and I try to remember that part of my job on seeing those farms is to be the eyes, ears, and nose that a customer doesn't always have the opportunity to be. Now, one thing that you mentioned that has me really curious is that you have a degree in tourism. Is agritourism something you'd ever be interested in participating in or facilitating in your own operation or with the other farms that you might know or partner with?
1: Absolutely. So at this point, uh, my tourism piece is that anyone who uh, is interested, I'm happy to have them come visit and I practice my talk with them. Um, and then I hope that after COVID opens up that I can have more Organize bigger groups to come visit. Uh, however, right now, uh, as I say, I I the certification that I want is just to be able to invite everyone and anyone to come visit my farm whenever. Um, and sometimes that's a little difficult on lease land when there's, you know, mm-hmm. the homeowners are, are a little concerned about things. Um, but it is something that's very important. And so when I did my original research connecting tourism with aquaponics, mm-hmm. the big findings were first of all that. Um, that awareness is super important because whether it's pastured livestock, whether it's regenerative agriculture, or whether it's the technology involved in aquaponics, not many people even know what it is. So we mm-hmm. need to create that awareness. And so by creating opportunities for, you know, whether it's young people, whether it's school age children, whether it's university groups, to come in and do research or just learn or just get introduced to the concepts. That is huge. Having, uh, tourism pieces like, you know, on farm tours, we have the, the, the farm tour, like community farm tours in many communities. There's one up Island from me and one down Island from me, but there's none here in Nanaimo. So, uh, fellow regenerative friends of mine, we, we look to build a farm tour here in our community in the future. Um, and then, uh, at the time, it was the Canadian Tourism Commission, the CTC. One of their top five mandates for Canadian tourism was uh, local eating experiences, and Ooh. so that falls in line perfectly with you know the farmer farm to table connection. Uh, farm to table talk also being one of my favorite podcasts out of California with Roger Wasson. So, the farm to table. Uh, Connection is very important and why I'm so happy to work with some of the influential restaurants here in town and and to have my name there on their on their menu so that you know if you're sitting there and you're thinking about ordering the chicken or the pork and you see that it's Glass and Farms chicken, you can pull your phone out and look up what I'm doing. And then there's the connection. There's the introduction to regenerative agriculture.
0: Ben, I have to tell you, this has been an amazing conversation and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, so uh, my website is glassinfarms.com. Glassin, like in a window, E-N, glassinfarms.com. Uh Also, I've been hosting a lot of conversations on Clubhouse. So if you're an iPhone user um, and you find an invite into that, that app, uh, we talk about regenerative agriculture in the Food Growers United Club, uh, as well as you'll see me popping in and out of rooms uh, all over that space. Uh, my Instagram is the best place to to see what I'm doing, uh, because farming is such a visual thing. Uh, mm-hmm. the beautiful images are, are so wonderful on Instagram and that's glass and farms, um, uh, just at glass and farms on Instagram. So, uh, I would love to hear converse, uh, you know, I would love to hear questions and comments and, uh, and hear from people who have listened to the podcast and, uh, and absolutely love, love what you're doing, Terrence. And I can't appreciate enough, uh, the influence that you have had on my life. Um, and, and I'm so grateful that, you know, uh, I am now here, uh, talking on your podcast myself.
0: Ben, as I said, this has been an amazing conversation. We'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes so people can check it out. Thank you again for joining us on the show.
1: For sure. And if I had any last comment, it would be that I'm now reframing how I describe what I'm doing because there's been a lot of conversation in in uh, plant-based rooms about uh, that farmland should be taken out of production and rewild. Mm-hmm. And, and I think about what I do, I am rewilding ecosystems. And I am using nature's principles to rewild meadows and forests. And I'm not... And something that I I learned through your last interview um, with the author of Wild Like the Flowers is, I'm not practicing biomimicry. I'm not Uh mimicking natural systems. I am participating in natural systems. And where we no longer have the elk, and we no longer have the predators to move the the prey uh, across the land, now I'm using electric fence and I'm using uh, livestock to do the same work and to do the same natural systems that have always been the systems of rewilding natural landscapes.
0: It is one of the great things I love about this show is when I get to hear things like that. And the thing I took away so much from that interview was the idea of being a participant in a system, that we aren't necessarily a... That we are stewards, that we have that incredible role and opportunity to play in being a part of that. And it's really one of the things I love about getting to talk to farmers is that they are the stewards of the landscape in so many different ways that we can't even begin to scratch the surface
1: usually. For sure, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Terrence. Uh, I appreciate your time and I appreciate what you do.
0: Thank you again for coming on the show. Big thanks to Ben for joining us on the show. You can learn more about him and his work by checking out his farm at glassenfarms.com and his social media wherever glassenfarms Farms can be found. All of that and more will be linked in the show notes at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash glassen, G-L-A-S-S-E-N. If you are new to the show, please subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast player of choice is. While you are there. Please leave us a rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. It really helps us grow the show. Tips on how to do this can be found at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash review. Until next time, this has been Terrence Leahy and the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast reminding you to keep farming the dream.